Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm here with my co-host and good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Always good. We're going to do something different this week, Mark. Oh, we're going to mix things up? We're going to mix it up. Okay. New segment. It's, it's going to be called Today in Board Gaming History. Okay. So we'll look back and we'll think of, we'll find something. So... I've got the first thing already here, believe it or not. You know, it's my segment. You know I got something ready. Sure. So this day in 2023, the ever popular segment, This Day in History, <laughs> on the unpopular podcast, <laughs> This uh, So Very Wrong About Games, was canceled. <laughs> well, it was a good run while it was. It was great. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to talk about our feature game. This week, which is Iki. Mark, what did you play this week? I got to play another game of Air, Land, and Sea, Spies, Lies, and Supplies. This is the Expand Alone by John Perry to his original Air, Land, and Sea. And I am a huge fan of this game system. It is reminiscent of Blue Moon in that one of the key decision points is knowing when to give up. Because the key thing that makes Blue Moon shine is a game, the Reiner Knizia two-player card game, which kind of sort of looks like magic, but in point of fact is actually more like an auction game, is knowing that just because you can win a fight doesn't mean that you should win the fight. And Airland and Sea has this marvelous sense of escalation, whereby the fewer cards you have left in your hand, the more points you're awarding your opponent for losing. And if you stand your ground when you shouldn't, you're going to suffer for it. And on top of that is a lovely set of very, very simple rules that allow for a lot of special powers. Now, given the paucity of cards, we're talking about games that only have 18 cards in the deck, you quickly get a feel for what the special powers are, and you start to wonder, do they have them? Does my opponent waiting for to play them? Have they already played it face down? Is it in the deck somewhere? Lovely game of tension. If it's a small box with John Perry's name on it, you cannot go wrong. 
And I'm I'm kind of looking forward to trying eventually with somebody who with a little more experience with the system and combining the two sets, the Airland and Sea and Spies License Supplies to play a five front mega game of Airland and Sea. Team game, not so much. <laughs> Maybe if the mega game works out well, I might be willing to try the four player version, but honestly, two player game blown up to four, we don't have good track record with that. Anyway. Huge fan of Airland and Sea, huge fan of Spies, Lies, and Supplies by John Perry, published by Arcane Wonders, 2022. Mark, I went back to a Martin Wallace game called Tinner's Trail. This is on Board Game Arena. Lots of very interesting things going on here. You have a bunch of money at the beginning of the game, and then you're some you're starting to bid on your turn. You say, okay, I want to bid for this plot of land. There could be circumstances that you've, you've, you've seen what the tile is. It's going to have some mixture of water and or tin and or copper. And so the bidding starts and you only have so much money for that round. So you can sort of bleed the other players out and maybe get a bunch of other ones for free. And you're also restrained by a certain number of actions. So if I start the bid and not, won't necessarily count as my actions. It's whoever wins the bid, that will cost them two actions. Ah, lovely, yes. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. And it's very cube railsy. Starting an auction just to start it. Just so. And then and then one of the actions you can do is, you know, pull the ore out of out of that uh, piece of land. And that's also going to cost you action. So you could make that more efficient by dumping more pieces in there. There's miners, there's boats, there's aqueducts, there's uh rail things, but each plot can only have one of those things. You can have them all, but only one of each. And that all that all costs you action, but it costs you nothing else. It's free to put that stuff out, but there's only a certain amount of them every round. So what most of those do is allow you, when you do take the mining action, get more ore out. And that ore is going to cost you, each piece of ore is going to cost you how much water is in that plot. So some of those pieces let you pull the water out, so you almost want to get it down to zero because as soon as you do mine, another water goes in. So you could mine for three, and then you could mine for three again next turn, but it'll cost you $3. So these are all the things you have to take in, into account. And what those, and then at the end, when everyone's taken all their actions, it's, you've gone to the end of the track, you can pass early, because whoever passes first gets to buy victory points. And you're going to sell all of the ore that you've collected that round, and it's a fluctuating market. So you sort of want to, you know mine all your ore if the price is high or all your tin. And then you're going to take all of that money and you're going to start buying victory points. And the, the earlier you pass, the more victory points you're going to get for your money. And it's that sort of system. So you're going to sort of say, well, how many victory points do I want to buy this turn? Because I want to have some money left over to buy more plots next turn. All of this stuff. I confess, Walker, I wasn't able to parse a lot of what you said because I was so confused when you said it's a Martin Wallace game and you start off with this money. Because typically the Martin Wallace game, you start off with nothing, and the first thing you do is acquire debt. <laughs> and you can tell whether it's one of his more permissive uh, games, because taking on debt is doesn't cost you actions, versus his more restrictive games where taking on debt is a time-consuming process. <laughs> yeah, so I'm very glad I went back to it. I've forgotten how much I enjoyed it the first time. It's 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 so different that you know it's hard to get on your first game. It's on Board Game Arena, so. Looking forward to more plays of Tinner's Trail. The actual game is put out by Alley Cat Games. The reprint, yes. The reprint. So Tinner's Trail. I played a game called Sky Tier Horde. Now, just for some context, uh, Sky Tier is probably the only MOBA-style board game that wasn't a big hit for me personally. I think Walker wasn't terribly pleased with it either. Sky Tier was designed to be one of the many 
board games that adapt MOBA-style conventions. Had a lot of good stuff that I liked, but all told, the activation system was kind of restrictive and cumbersome, and the minion play was interesting in theory, but in practice it turned out to be a bit of a slog. Anyway, I wanted to like Skytier, didn't really like Skytier all that much. Skytier Horde is in the same universe, but doesn't really share any mechanisms with it. It is a basically a solitaire tower defense game. In practice, though, what it turns out to be is finally the solitaire magic-ish style combat that I've always wanted. I've always wondered in the back of my mind if, if when and if someone was going to make a quality solitaire game where your 4-2 creature attacks my 2-3 creature, etc., etc., with all the, the, the layer on special powers. Epic the card game had a solo version that I didn't find very satisfying. Uh, there are a lot of very simple deck builders that kind of sort of almost have that kind of combat system with, with good solitaire systems. But honestly, Sky to Your Horde, I think, is the best iteration of that style of creature matchup uh, coupled with solid solitaire mechanisms. It's got a great bit where you fill out the lanes with some opponents and then you get to respond, but then there's some possibility of either a weird special effect happening afterward that is very difficult to respond to or some buff happening semi-randomly. So that the element of the AI is very simple and has just enough chaos. The only part about Sky to Your Horde that gives me some pause is that the difficulty seems all over the map and it's not so much a function of the difficulty settings built in. There's a lot of modularity, and I've got the retail version of Sky to Your Horde. It was kind of expensive for a retail version. It's a simple card game for which I paid 65-ish Canadian dollars at retail, even after uh, the discounts. Oof. There's some Kickstarter exclusives, whatever. I, I'm, I'm happy without them. And there are a lot of different difficulty levels, a lot of different opponents you can face, a lot of different monsters you can have, three different decks you can play as. But the key variability seems to be in just the order in which you draw cards off the top of your deck. They're very proud of the fact, as well they should be, it's well done, you don't draw many cards off your deck over the course of a game of Sky to Your Horde. Your deck size is important because how the stronger the minions get, you start burning more cards, and, and getting decked is a loss condition, and that interfaces with the health of your, your base. And all of that's great. Very, very well done. But the problem is, if over the course of the game you're only going to be drawing a small number of cards and you never pull your heavy hitters, and it's the case that you've got this boss with regenerating armor every round, there's not generally going to be a whole heck of a lot you can do. Yes, there are some trade-offs you can employ to draw more cards, but suffice to say, I've played a, a few times now, and I felt that the primary variability in terms of difficulty was, did I draw the cards I wanted at the time that I had them? And that's not especially satisfying, but the good news is that's kind of okay. It's about a 20 to 30 minute game. Sky Tier Horde also has multiplayer versions where you can play one to three. One or two players can play as the good guys, and zero or one players can play as the bad guys. <laughs> so that's how the different player con configurations go. I was going to ask you whether it's solo only or a co-op game. That's looking forward to trying it then. Yeah, it, honestly, uh, and, and I think... This is a good way to put it. It feels a little bit like Xenoshift simplified with no deck building and considerably shorter because Xenoshift, we really like the deck building, but the sort of the fundamental lane defense of plopping out your soldiers and defending against various creatures, part of that feels similar, despite the fact that, if anything, Sky to Your Horde is a little bit more deterministic because you know what the monsters are face up. In Xenoshift, they're face down, and you're just trying to build the best possible force and then reacting using special abilities, and that's one of the reasons why the game takes so long, because you have these interesting special abilities and you need to know when to trigger them. At any rate, I enjoyed Sky to Your Horde. I'd play it again. It's, it, it has all 
all the features that I like in solitaire games. Namely, you don't spend feel like you're spending the entire time manipulating components. You don't feel like you're spending the entire time adjudicating an AI. And by the same token, it's very, very quick. Now, one of the reasons I should specify why Scary Tier Horde crossed our radar was because one of our overlords asked for our opinions on it. This is not something that I normally would have looked at because, again, Sky Tier was somewhat unsatisfying. And it's a little more expensive than I think it should be. But all told, I'm very, very happy to be proven wrong in such instances, and I was very pleased with it, and I would be willing to try the multiplayer rules with you, because unlike uh, Spies, Lies, and Supplies or Airland and Sea, uh, both players are playing a full-ish game in response to the AI, but not really. So I'm curious about where the balance lies. Does it feel like you're just chopping up the same... Both players have their own deck and their, and their own hand at least. So we'll see how that feels. So the Sky Tier Horde, this was designed by Giacomo Neri and Ricardo Neri, published by Sky Tier Games this year. Now, uh, parenthetically, this nepotism has got to stop, right? Sky Tier Games was clearly just looking around, though, oh, here's a Sky Tier game I could publish. Come on, let's have open and fair competition for design priorities. Is it just all the same assets, art assets? Or is it just like, hey, we have all these art assets? Well, it's the same same universe. Uh, I didn't recognize a whole lot of reused art assets, but I did recognize a lot of visual touchstones being reused. So I got to show a bunch of people, including you, Great Western Trail Argentina. And this shares a lot of the same things you do in Great Western Trail with other more stuff added on. So instead of just bringing your cows to the train, you're bringing them to the train, which loads them onto... Boats. Uh, boats. So there's boats and there's islands or countries that they get shipped to. So you're, Yeah, your cows get to visit other countries. Yeah, it's it's, it's a game of tourism. It's yeah. a tour. Uh, and then instead of bandits on the roads, you are hiring farmers. Which is hiring. In, which is hiring or not being uh, f- fleeced by the farmers. Yeah, honestly, I don't know anything about the relationship between cow wranglers and agriculture in South America during any period of time. I don't know if this is Alexander Fister trying to model something, but it comes off as aggressively antagonistic. <laughs> I, I, I could be representative of something historical, might just be an accidental design. It was strange. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the first play. This is my second time I played it. I enjoyed the added on because I felt as though Great Western Trail usually broke down to just getting everything done. Because you ended up, you know, getting the cows. You, I mean, you hit all the points. This one, you definitely had to choose. Am I going to focus on on the cows or am I going to focus on filling up these islands or am I going to get a bunch of workers? I think it let you focus more on certain things as opposed to just doing a bunch of everything. I hear you. I think I would find Great Western Trail repetitive and subject to the same difficulties that the standard complaints are always lodged if I played it a whole lot more. I very seldom play Great Western Trail, and when I do, I'm always happy to play it. It's one of my favorite Alexander Fister designs, but Alexander Fister isn't one of my favorite designers, so it's not like I'm, I'm constantly seeking it out. So I don't think I've even cracked half a dozen plays of Great Western Trail. If I played it regularly, I think I'd start seeing those problems. But as it is, I kind of like how relatively focused it is compared to a lot of other stuff. I mean, honestly, it feels like in Great Western Trail Argentina, there's kind of two different games that you can, and you can focus on either one. There's the cows, and then there's everything to do with grain. Grain is very, very expensive, very hard to get, unless you focus on it. And sometimes you can sub in grain for money, which is what most of us did most of the time. Or you can focus on the cow tourism element, in which case you desperately need grain for that and it can be very, very lucrative. But again, you need the grain. 
And then you start interacting with the farmers more in a slightly less or slightly more antagonistic way. Now, the rules say you're helping the farmers. All that I know is that I deploy, deploy cow cards with blades on the corner of them. So I assume this is some sort of cow war machine with some kind of spiked wheel chariot system. And you start decapitating farmers. I mean, that, that's what I get from the components. I think it said that somewhere in the rule book. It was like in the fine you know, oh, okay. text, like flavor text. Oh, okay, good. Then I, I won't bother to read the rule book to confirm. And I'm sure no one will on the internet uh, correct or no. affirm this position. So that's all right. I mean, nothing about the 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 element of of, of having your cows take package tours to Le Havre was was necessarily offensive or unpleasant. It was all fine, and it hangs together kind of okay. But at the end of the day, I kind of liked the fact that in Great Western Trail, the original, you have this pressure to bring your trains up, and you have this pressure to get your herds better, and those twin pressures kind of drove the economy of the game. Now. To return back to my original point, would it feel samey after about half a dozen more plays? Quite possibly. And I recognize why the first expansion to Great Western Trail exists. But by the same token, I still think that my favorite version is the original one. I, I might be singing a different tune in different contexts. I do really like the new art style for the second edition. So Argentina was uh, was published at the same time as second edition of Great Western Trail was published. Uh, double layer boards are always great. And uh, it's got the classic Fisterian sense of, oh my gosh, look at all these icons. How does a turn structure work again? But <laughs> just so. And uh, I have the, I like the shortcuts. You know, uh, the more you advance your train, the quicker you can dump your cows. Did off. they matter though? I think so. Really? I think I think with a with a future play, I want to try with just focus on the islands, like not worrying about what your cows are. Sure. Just getting the discs out, right? Sure. So doing quick loops, filling up the boats getting discs out to the islands and seeing if that is a viable strategy. Sure. I mean, if anything, I mean, talking about the shortcuts, he tried to decouple, no pun intended, the train action from the cows. The cows and the trains don't really have much to do with each other anymore in Argentina. And that too made it feel like the game was hanging together less well. As a consequence, there there's another salient benefit of investing in your track, and that is the shortcut. But I didn't feel, personally, I didn't feel like the shortcut was particularly consequential. But then again, it was just a first play, and and, and I don't know. I, I have to believe that uh, Fister is usually pretty good at balancing things like this. So I'm well, only going to defer well, I think expertise. maybe it didn't feel like that because you had already advanced your train past that last... You know, that remember the last path that was full of workers that would have cost, you know, four or five dollars to get through every That time. is true. That is true. I had well, not workers, farmers. Well, farmers, sorry, farmers. Far, yet to be beheaded farmers. Just so. That was Great Western Trail Argentina by Alexander Fister, published by Eggert Spiel in twenty twenty two. We tried a co-op game called The Stygian Society. This is done by Kevin Wilson. Kevin Wilson is no longer working for Fantasy Flight Games, in large part because we don't really know if anyone is still working for Fantasy Flight Games. Certainly not game designers. <laughs> the Bailers are working still. You know. <laughs> yeah, haul- hauling uh, the stuff out of the shredder and... No, well, keeping the water out from the bottom of the boat that's sinking. <laughs> Uh, Kevin Wilson designed uh, Descent, uh, Game of Thrones, Arkham Horror back in the day, and now he's mostly focused on comparatively lighter stuff. The Stygian Society was kickstarted a few years ago, and it is a co-op uh, fantasy adventure thing where players cooperate to try to take down a wizard, and it makes f- heavy use of a cube tower. And I know for a fact that anytime I say cube tower, Walker's eyes light. Well, it's true, because I... I, we had played this game, and I was getting my notes ready, and I had forgotten the name. The Stygian Society is a little odd, so it didn't come right to me. So I just typed in on my computer, uh, uh, Cube Tower, the Cube Tower game. And, and that was definitely <laughs> the first one that came up. Yes. 
That is an apt description. On your turn, literally what you do is you choose an ability to activate, which will let you drop some number of cubes, and the enemies will cause you to drop some number of cubes, and then whatever gets disgorged, you check to see if there are enough enemy cubes to trigger a special ability, which is usually some form of attack, doing damage to the party, raising peril, or something else. And then you see if there are enough cubes to activate your ability, which is typically attacking some monster. Now, it's one of those strange games where the variety in monster effects seems vastly higher than the variety of what you might be doing because you're going to go through six fights. And in each fight, you're going to have unique minion styles. And it's done very, very simply. The AI is a breeze to execute. But there's a lot of personality in terms of how the different monsters work. For my part, what I thought we were doing was you get to dump some number of blue cubes into the tower. And then you see how many blue cubes you have. And, well, and you, that's how much damage you And do. then you choose what name you want to give this particular type of blue cube that you're... It's like, I, right. can, do, I can do Death Strike yep. with two blue cubes, yep. or Strike Death with <laughs> two blue cubes, or Lightning Bolt with two blue cubes. Yes. I kept trying, every time I leveled up, I was thinking, okay, can I make use of any of the other types of cubes, white cubes or green cubes, just to inject some variety into the game? They never seemed as good. <laughs> like, yeah, my character, who was, the, who was the doctor, doctor here is in quotation marks, I think it's more like... He's not really a physician. He just knows a lot about human anatomy, if you understand what I mean. Uh, so there's that. And every time I look at a green ability, it's like, okay, well, this can do one damage to a whole bunch of different enemies. Well, that's not great, because everyone else is knocking enemies out in one hit. So why would I want to soften up a bunch of enemies when we can easily kill them one shot? Uh, okay. Then there were some healing abilities, but we never had a whole lot of damage sitting around. So forget that. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll take another blue ability. Yeah, we, we got a bunch of abilities. Let's just dump out the enemy cube pool. So they never, a lot of times they never, you know, worked up to enough cubes to do anything was odd. Yeah. And then and then there was a whole treasure system that... The poorly explained, poorly yes. Poorly explained and executed. Uh, the fundamental ideas, I think, are good. And everything with respect to the enemies, I really like. I just never felt like I was doing very much on my turn. It, it's like, okay, I'll dump some more blue cubes in. There we go. I killed something else. All right. And it did have a small interesting thing where there was a crypt that was a few inches out from the ejection port of the tower. And if they just happened to fall in there, then they're worth more. Same with the enemy cubes. If they dropped in there, they also would be more powerful. That was something, but it hardly ever happened. And it was odd. But still, it <laughs> yes. was like you said, it, there is there is something there. And I think with a little more, I think even with maybe even small dice, like then they'd have a numeric value on it. <laughs> I don't know. Th- well, not, more randomness well, is not, not what not the a game one needs. through six, though. I don't want a one through six. I want like a, a D four. You know what I mean? Like okay, like customized dice. That... I want more interesting hero turns. True. I want the game to be not quite so long. The Stygian Society is. It, it was a solid hundred minutes, I'd say, maybe longer. And given how repetitive the the actual turns were. I didn't find that satisfying. We, we suggested, we were just spitballing what you could do. It is possible that the pressure for healing would go up if the game were harder. So possibly just chopping off a couple of levels of, of the, of the game, literally. So less time to level up. Uh, our abilities would be weaker as a consequence. There'd be greater pressure to maybe. I don't know. I'm not especially inclined to go back, but I'd be happy. If the group wanted to play it again, I'd happily play it again. But as it is, I thought the physical gimmick was fine. I thought the AI was great. It's just a shame that what the actual players were doing was less interesting. There are a couple of expansions that we have access to. I will glance at them and see if any of the heroes there are more interesting or more substantial. Uh, but as it is, I felt that the Stygian Society was very uneven. That is the Stygian Society. There's a video game called Company of Heroes. I don't believe you. It is an RTS World War II game, 
And guess what? They tried to make, I think they successfully made a board game version. <laughs> or I guess you could almost say it's a miniature, sort of a miniature skirmish version. Yeah. Sort of like a combo of both, I guess. Well, in terms of genre, it's it's weird. I mean, its relationship to World War II is yet further removed than even something like Memoir 44 at its gamiest, right? Memoir 44 at least had some notion of trying to have some idea of cavalry thrusts and historical setups and things like this. This feels very much like an RTS with a World War II veneer pasted right on top. Like, it was absurd, the things that were happening. Like, we had German armored cars zipping all over the map, like, going behind enemy lines and just going wherever they wanted to, and mortar teams acting unsupported on the front line. It was it was thoroughly weird. So just like the the video game is what we're saying. Oh, okay. I, I've never played the video game. People on the table were commenting, oh, this feels just like this part of the... I mean, it felt very RTS-like to me in the sense that you would capture supply points to get currency and then use the currency to buy more units, which, by the way, is a cycle I don't tend to enjoy very much. It tends to feel a little bit like rich get richer and or a slow buildup and or extremely gamey situations, which Company of Heroes only sometimes succumbed to. But anyway, I was interrupting. My apologies. I'd say it very much felt like the video game. They did a great job on the objective points and wanting to shoot out and, and capture them and sort of defend them and push people back. Where it fell sort of flat were the movement restrictions and the first player problems that we had. Yeah, the turn order is a huge deal. If you are first in turn order, you can just rush up and grab an objective point and just sit there. And yeah, you might get murdered, but there's nothing the opponent can do to get that objective point that turn. Similarly, if you are last in turn order, you can zip a threatened unit out to safety with no possibility of repercussions. There are real-time rules for the movement phase, which caused you to vomit a little bit in your mouth. That's true. When just hearing about them. I might be willing to give them a try. This is published by Bad Crow Games. These are the same people that did Mech Command RTS, that charming but structurally problematic, by by that I mean married to a campaign system, real-time mech game. I really liked the real-time elements in, in, in that. Uh, I've been meaning to actually whip it out again to see if I could get some sort of mission where you could still buy mech parts and not feel married to a campaign system. I don't know. But one must concede the toy factor is both its biggest strength and its greatest weakness. You know, once again, I got this game for Dewey because he wanted it. Dewey wanted the game. He expressed interest. The people to whom we subject games on a regular basis almost never express independent interest in anything. So when they do, I'm willing to go through consider jump through considerable hoops to try to get it for them. I'm not trying to make myself out to be some sort of martyr or very generous person. It's just this is me paying it forward as best I can, right? So that's why we got Darkest Dungeon, because Huey is a massive Darkest Dungeon fan and does a great impersonation of the voice. Dewey said he wanted Company of Heroes, so I was able to get one in trade, so I did. Uh, and, but this is, this is exactly the kind of game that we're kind of moving away from. <laughs> yes, just <laughs> like so. three to $400 for a massive amount of toy tanks. Like we don't need that in our lives at this, at this juncture. But it has turrets that you can pull off and put different turrets on. It has movement trays where you set up your, your units and they take casualties and you can put special weapons on the, on the on the movement trays. It has these three-dimensional flags to mark that you've taken objectives. It has these giant buildings. It has a destructible it has, church. <laughs> it has it has all of the stuff. It, oh, there's a fair amount of stuff, that is for certain. Yeah, I mean, it just felt 
super I, I i'd rather play any one of a number of skirmish games like quite frankly i'd rather play cards of atlantis for that matter uh but i'd pl- rather play cards of atlantis to most things it just it didn't feel like the setting was adding anything to it at all and in point of fact the setting was at odds with the gameplay because like this feels exactly like an rts and zero percent like anything <laughs> remotely resembling infantry combat and so yeah, if if you're approaching it as somebody with any experience with the with the video game, I suspect that cognitive dissonance will be significantly lower. I have zero experience with the video game, and so the cognitive dissonance was very strong. <laughs> Surprise to say, I kind of enjoyed it, it which is weird because it, it was too long and it was fluky turn order stuff and and weird cobbled together turn. Uh, but it definitely had blocking people off of certain parts of the map. It had, we were like, we started on different corners, so there was definitely advantages to both sides on, on varying parts of the map. And I did like being able to upgrade units and acquire the special powers. As you acquire experience points, quote unquote, you can buy upgrades for individual units. You're not upgrading all units, you're upgrading individual units, so they're kind of like battlefield promotions. And that I thought was a, was a good use of, of, of resources. And it's also the case that you can buy what are called commander cards, which are just sort of army-wide upgrades that let you specialize in a particular, particular thing. I went heavy into mortars, which again, was absurd. Like, I had a mortar-heavy force, I just had a whole bunch of mortar teams. Like, that's not, that's not an army. Anyway... <laughs> So it was it was some it was some pretty pretty stupid fun high toy factor. I'm willing to take advantage of it where it's there. It's just not the kind of thing that I'm I'm necessarily going to seek out going forward. We might not talk about it again, so I'm I just want to point out the activation system thing I thought was well done as well. You had 9 cubes, you could there was three phases, you could use uh 3 cubes per phase and you could split them however you wanted. You could dump them all in one unit or spread them out. I thought that was sometimes Interesting. Yeah, but I think it's fair to lay at the feet of the activation system at large the weird turn turn order problems. Like there was, uh, there was one instance. Just to go into a little bit more detail, there was a little one instance in the left flank where I had this objective point that was being occupied by a single half dead truck, and Dewey surrounded it with four units ready to murderize it. Ah, but Dewey was the start player. So I was the second player. So as my very final activation, I got the truck out of Dodge. Now, Dewey has all those units not able to deploy any firepower and unable to take the objective point. Next turn, I was the start player. And the first thing I did was I moved the truck back into the objective point. Aha! Turn number two where Dewey doesn't get the objective point. It was, uh, I, as I say, we've, we've, we've come up with a potential house rule if Dewey wants to, to bring it up again. Uh, then uh, again, if, if he's if he's still enthusiastic, I'm willing to try it again, especially because it, it was a present for him. I'd be willing to try the 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 um, a movement alternate rule to try to smooth that out a little bit, make it a little less ridiculous. That was Company of Heroes. Played a game called Voyages. Voyages is a print and play roll and write. Uh, designed by Matthew Dunstan and Rory Muldoon. Uh, Matthew Dunstan, you may remember from the Guild of Merchant Explorers, which is kind of sort of a roll and write and probably one of my favorites of the genre. And so I was willing to give it a try. This was also particularly recommended by a number of listeners. People say that Voyages gives you a greater quality of decision making as compared to a lot of roll of rights. Because instead of just filling out a matrix, don't worry, you're also filling out a matrix. <laughs> but instead of just filling out a matrix, you're also voyaging on this map. So you roll three dice, 
One goes to the Matrix, one fixes your direction, the other fixes how many spaces you move on this grid map. And you get points for landing in various things, you know, standard sort of points for this, points for that, point for whatever, the various point salad in, in, in there. And then combos. It's got to be combos, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, 100%. Okay. Yeah, you, you played a role right before. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how this works. And I have to say that I was very pleased with the initial turns. I was playing solo for what it's worth. The initial turns I thought were great. I'm like, yeah, I can see why people really prefer this to a lot of other roll and rights. There's some really quality options and trade-offs going in here. And the later turns really made me feel like I was at the mercy of the dice. Like, absolutely. Yes, there are ways to mitigate the dice, of course, but you're going to be burning through that currency a lot. I would much rather play it multiplayer, because at least in multiplayer, everyone is stuck with the same results. So if I roll triples, or if I keep rolling double after double after double, which really narrows down your movement options, at least everyone is suffering together. And I don't feel like my potential to beat the arbitrary score cap is hampered by the fact that how well or poorly I am rolling. And I have to say that Postmark Games, which is the company that does Voyages, has really supported it. There's a whole bunch of different maps with new rules. There's a campaign mode. There's a lot of effort has, has of gone. there's a campaign mode. Well, it's got to be. you got to have a campaign mode. But for something that's that's cheap and cheerful, you give them a couple bucks and they send you some PDFs. It's not just a PDF. It's kind of a... They've, they've tried to make it into a game system. I'll also note that with a name like Voyages, uh, I, I bought the game a couple years ago, again, on the recommendation of some listeners, then completely forgot about it, and the download link was good for 90 days. And I remembered that much, but I couldn't remember what the game was called. And so... And searching your email for something called, uh, you know, was it Voyages? Was it Expeditions? I don't know. I just remember it was super generic. Anyway, they were very nice. I reached out to them. It's like, uh, I ordered your game. I don't have the files anymore. Could, could, could you give me the files? I don't want to buy it twice. So they, they, they sent it to me. It was very nice. You know, I'll give them a shout out for that. Voyages by Matthew Dunstan and Rory Muldoon and Postmark Games. I will merely note as an aside, the next roll and write print and play that I'm going to be playing is, of course, Pride and Prejudice. Very nice. Lastly, for me, we streamed, I streamed, we all streamed for Woodcraft. <laughs> this is designed <laughs> by Ross Arnold, Vladimir Suchi, published by Delicious Games. And it was my favorite game from last year. Still love it. Uh, I still make the same mistakes. I say, Mike, Mike, this game. You're going to upgrade your board like you're supposed to. <laughs> it's going to make your later turns so much better. Uh-huh. You're like, no! And then you get distracted by something shiny. No! Yeah. Shiny stuff. Yep. Cut the wood. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yes, didn't go as as well as I wanted. Still enjoy it. Did to go better. That The first, uh, first game uh, we played with Warm Boy, the first game I played with him, the reputation just wasn't anywhere. We we got no orders that had any reputation, no employees that gave reputation, and we were all just struggling to get our orders worth a single point each, never mind yeah. more than that. This time was much different, so it led to, led to a much different game and, and more, more employees and more cards that gave dice back, so we were having a nice, you know... Virtuous cycle. Exactly. Yeah. As opposed to being it was it was such a weird game but anyway <laughs> this one much better if you want to see it it is on our youtube live channel order fulfillment yay sorry <laughs> <laughs> no i've just been thinking that i might like to try uh playing pulsar again soon because it is my favorite vladimir Suki. it is i love it look he's a solid designer again i <laughs> i feel churlish complaining it's like oh look 
here's another quality medium heavy game by this dude. The worst thing is, is it feels like a lot like his other really well done medium heavy Euro games that he's done in the past. But it's my job to be churlish. It's in the job description. That's right. It's what it says on the business card. Professional churl and gibbon wrangler. But that's more an amateur. Yeah, I was going to say that. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. New survey. So in the initial survey that we sent out at the end of last year, there was considerable interest in the possibility of some kind of in-person get-together or small gaming con. And so I'm going to be spending part of 2023 trying to see if we can make that happen. And to that end, to discover what people want, what people had in mind, what people might be willing to commit to, uh, there is a poll that we've put out for our listeners. If you want the URL for this poll, you can find it in the episode notes. You can also find it on Facebook. You can also find it on Twitter. So if you are at all inclined, or even if you're not inclined, but might be inclined under some parallel universe or some other circumstances, uh, please, we would appreciate the time. It's very short, and uh, your feedback means a lot to us. So on the please to- fill out the poll. On the topic of filling stuff out, I've figured out a way that I can we can sell, I can self-promote us without throwing up in my mouth. Oh, yeah? I can just say stuff like, if you get gaming content from anywhere, 
then throw them a like or or, or hypothetically hypothetically or yeah, I mean, yeah, like yeah. saying oh because we are yeah. in such a niche and it's true and these people that put out content really sort of need a push that you're listening or that you're enjoying their content it's true it can be a very lonely endeavor and if if someone that does content and you buy a game because of what they said then send send the publisher a, a message saying i bought this game because i heard it on this person's uh, uh podcast or whatever and uh do your best. Absolutely. More news. Wabash Cannonball, which was, for what it's worth, my first Cube Rails game, initially published in 2007, and then published by Kung as Chicago Express, but in my heart of hearts, it has always been Wabash Cannonball. Wabash also serves as an excellent verb. Would you like to Wabash? Why, yes, I would love to Wabash. Are we Wabashing today? Uh, no. I had a great, had great uh, bash of Waz yesterday. There you go. That is that is indeed the canonical way to play with the word. You bash Wah. Precisely. So Wabash Cannonball is going to be reprinted by Rio Grande Games under the title Wabash Cannonball, and with the actual name of the designer on it, John Borer. He published it pseudonymously for reasons passing understanding. It's a whole thing. John Borer is a bit of a character. And I'm looking forward to any output of Rio Grande, and Wabash Cannonball being back in print is great. And they've decided to return back to Wabash Cannonball's roots in more ways than just the name, because the box cover looks aggressively dull, with very serious train game looking fonts and very serious train game looking graphics as opposed to the bright and splashy uh, Chicago Express. So I think I'm going to be picking up a copy when Rio Grande republishes Wabash Cannonball. Speaking of train ga- train games, it's, there's uh, Ticket to Ride, Mark, who's a game that's just like Ticket to Ride called oh, Ethnos. Man. So, so many train gamers are now bristling at your calling it. I don't take any position on this. Train game is a loaded term. <laughs> <laughs> we keep going. <laughs> so Ethnos from Palomori is getting a reprint from uh, uh, Space Cowboys, and they're going with a uh, a different theme. You're going to be uh, digging up architecture. Uh, archaeologists? Archaeologists. You're going to be archaeologists, uh, and you're going to be sending out teams of archaeologists, and, and, you know, so you're either gathering a team of archaeologists or you're deploying a team of archaeologists. Uh... Okay, well, what? how are the different peoples represented then? The, the different but, alma mater of what schools they went yeah, to? Yeah, <laughs> I suppose so. I mean, I respect the fact that the whole race war idea is now a little <laughs> regarded as a little touchy. That's fine, and I approve of that. <laughs> but So just like all the different versions of Ticket to Ride, now there will be a different version of Ethnos because the games are so similar. I'm just saying this over and over again because the article that I wrote kept comparing Ethnos to Ticket to Ride, and I had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> I don't see any similarity whatsoever, but I digress. Well, most of your turns, you're drafting a card from a display, or yeah, but that's sure. about it. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah I, okay. if, they, if they think it is, then that's fine. Sure. So, if you missed out on Ethnos, I love Ethnos. Ethnos is great. Play or draw. Play or draw. And wonderful. We James love sc- Scales beautifully. Yes. Everything by Palomari is great. New Ethnos. It's going to be called Archaeos Society. I'm very dubious about this retheming, I gotta say. The art looks amazing. Update. David Thompson News. I repeat, David Thompson News. Quiet in the back. I feel like it's been a whole three or four weeks since we've had the opportunity to announce a new design by David Thompson. I don't know how this man does it. Yes, he mostly co-designs, and this time he will be co-designing with his frequent collaborator, Trevor Benjamin, Canadian expat, co-designer of Undaunted, as well as War Chest, as well as talented designer in his own right with 
Mandela and a whole bunch of other excellent, excellent works. They're going to be designing a worker placement World War II game for two players called General Orders World War II. This is going to be published sometime in October by Osprey Games. I, for one, would like to call out the artist. The artist is named Alex Green. He does not have any credits on Board Game Geek for other board game art, uh, art, but the cover looks really interesting. And I am always looking forward to future output by David Thompson. And the great thing about looking forward to future output by David Thompson, you never have to wait very long. (laughs) This is true. And it's always good. Yes. Reprint of Guards of Atlantis 2 is going to be up on crowdfunding in April. And there's been some updates about what is going to be made available. Naturally, everything from previous the previous campaign is going to be available. There's also going to be new heroes. New heroes. New heroes for us incredibly incompetent Guards of Atlantis 2 enthusiasts to play inexpertly. But that's fine. It's our own private shame. We, uh, we learned our lesson. We, we tried streaming games of Guards of Atlantis before. And then you got all the Guards of Atlantis experts that have played the game hundreds and hundreds of times to be like, oh, well, you know, you, the, you're, you're following the Beta Sigma upgrade path. And so naturally, the next five card plays you're going to be doing are the following. It's Ah, oh, the Omega defense. Very interesting. Very Fascinating. interesting. Fascinating. Fa- yeah, it's like, yeah. Thanks, guys. I'm just, I'm just. Yeah, this is why we don't stream Root and we don't stream Guards <laughs> of Atlantis. And... It's true. Uh, at any rate. Additionally, there's some interesting comments in the uh, update. There's, I didn't know you could do updates for ca- for campaign preview pages, but Artie has written a lot about the decisions they've made, about what they're going to be doing, what the changes going forward. He pointed out a very a, a true correlation that I think is under-discussed, the impact of box size on people's willingness to play it. He says, look, Guards of Atlantis is already relatively hard to get to the table. It's easy to play, it's easy to get into, but it's hard to get to the table. And he thinks that one of the reasons why, and I agree with him, is that it's uh, a huge box. <laughs> so Very imposing. Yes. Going forward, uh, there's often this assumption that there's you know size of box, uh, impenetrability of gameplay going on, despite recent monstrosities like Foundations of Rome and, and things of that ilk. Uh, I think the one in our group that we like the most that has a massively oversized box and is relatively simple is probably Imperial Spells and Steam. People look at that and they get intimidated. But no, you just you put out trains. You, 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 you put out trains. Anyway, so interesting stuff about Guards of Atlantis. I will be, of course, getting all the new stuff when it relaunches in April. And finally from me, there's been a long-time schism in the world of Quest for Eldorado, the Reiner Knizia deck-building game. There has been the Ravensburger version with Franz Vowinkel art, and there has been the newer edition with the Vincent Dutre art. Now, I'd just like to point out, as a parenthetical, when you're designing a Euro game, that is an excellent problem to have. Do you want the Vincent Dutre or do you want the Franz Vowinkel? Like, that's an excellent dilemma. At any rate, Ravensburger is now trying to consolidate all of them and is going to be reprinting using the newer Vincent Dutre art and the larger card size. A lot of people care a lot about big versus small cards. I'm indifferent to that. I'm happy to play with small cards. But there's also going to be a new expansion called Dragons, Treasures, and Mysteries. And I am looking forward to there just being one product line, so I don't have to get confused anymore. Well, have we looked to see who the designer of the expansion is? Well, it's this guy named Reiner Knizia. Is it? I just want to make sure. That's all. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the main review, which is Iki. Iki was designed by Kooto Yamada. It was originally self-published in under a previous name and was then published professionally by a slew of designers, both domestically and internationally. The version that we have in our shores is published by Désolé Nous Sommes Français, better known as Sorry We Are French, in 2015. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Iki? Fire burns, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> excellent excellent summary <laughs> so 
Fire insurance in Iki is a great business to get into. <laughs> Either that or they just disallow it and the, the insurance person will laugh when you ask for fire insurance because there's a lot of fire. Fire happens. There's death and destruction. It's bad. <laughs> Do you know how Crassus in, uh, in ancient Rome got super rich? He had a private firefighting company. He also ran a fire insurance company and he would show up with his fire, his, his firefighters to a burning house and start negotiating with the resident about trying to purchase the property. <laughs> it's like, I would like to buy your house for a pittance. And they'd be like, but, the, but that's like, don't have much of a house left. And then if he was able to seal the deal, then he would put out the fire. Nice. Oh yeah. Well, not nice. That is uh no, that's no entrepreneurship. Mark. I'm sorry if I've offended any libertarians who think that firefighting should be a private enterprise. We take a firm, so very wrong about games position on firefighting that it is possibly best described as a collective good radical position. I know I'm very sorry. We keep it political. So I feel that Iki is a great game. Setup is quite easy. You're just setting up your player board. You're putting out the board, filling with some cards, choosing your starting card, and you're off to the races. So Iki came back to our recollection. We, we played it a few times over the years. And we were reminded of it, well, I was reminded of it, during our discussion of rondelles last week. And you were pointing out that a lot of games have been playing with rondelles. There's my traditional understanding of a rondelle, which is usually how Matt Gertz does it, because those are my favorite games with a rondelle. And Iki is very much a game with a rondelle. Kind of, kind of vaguely like Great Western Trail, you build the rondelle over the course of the game. But there's a great... There's more of an emphasis of it in Iki, quite frankly. I mean, the rondelle changes a lot more in Iki than it's going to happen in Great Western Trail. Uh, possibly too much, but more on that later. Uh, well, for my taste anyway. And so why don't you talk about how the cards work specifically in this in this context? Well, you're drafting sort of employees or, or, or market stalls. And there's a lot of things to think about when you're playing them. So you get your first initial one, and then at the beginning of every turn, you're going to be able to draft more or pass and just take some money. And there's a lot of considerations to take into account on what you're going to choose because there are five different colors. And like we said about the fire, you could have near the late part of the game, you could sort of hide behind people that do have fire protection because their fire protection will stop the fire from erasing that whole part of the street. You need a whole set of five to get a bunch of points at the end. So you got to think about... Uh, it's a standard triangular scoring of the more different colors you have, the more points you're going to get. The big score. And then at the end of every sort of round, there's also another sort of group scoring. So you've got to think about that as well when you're placing it. Do you want to go with the other yellow buildings? Do you want to, you know, go off on your own and give only yourself points? And then there's a small consideration of where everyone is on the rondelle. Because if there's only a few sort of... Because there's an interesting sort of... Every time you put out a building, you put a worker in it. And then if another player uses your building, they get more experience until they go off the end of the card and then they retire. So, if, you know, so you sort of want to get it out of head of all the people. So they all want to use it because if you pick the right sort of combination, then you get quickly retired and then you don't have to pay them uh, food at the end of the round. Ah, uh, but sometimes this backfires. This is one of the interesting elements of how the rondelle evolves, right? Yes. Because sometimes you take a worker because you want to be able to activate them. 
Yes. And if it's the case that everyone else jumps on it, especially near the end of the game where it doesn't take much for a worker to retire. And a lot of the late game workers, they, you know, they scale up in power and consequence as the game goes on. And so sometimes in Iki, you're like, okay, well, this worker suits my immediate infrastructure needs. And is worth points besides. So I'll put it on the map, and when my turn comes, I'll be sure to visit that worker and do it. Oh, the worker's gone. Oh, well. <laughs> so much for that plan. And that aspect of the trade-off between what kind of worker do I want for a variety of their different features. Do I want to activate them right away? Do I not care about activating them at all? Do I want them to be activated by other people? And how that interacts with the rondel, that's probably my favorite part of Iki. Because, again, as I said, you can take a worker just because you want to activate them right away that turn or at least try to, or you can take a worker for any any number of uh, other reasons. Sometimes the rondelle is full of interesting workers. Sometimes the rondelle is nearly empty of workers. It goes through these cycles and it ebbs and flows, and it really develops over a course of a single game in a way that other, even games where you can build on the rondelle don't. Like Great Western Trail is a one-way ratchet. The rondelle gets more crowded, mostly with stuff you can't do. Right, because yeah. everything that your opponents build, it's just obstacles. There's no good for you there. But in Iki, it just it it feels like an evolving economy, and I really appreciate that part. Yeah, and that's tied into how many employees that you have. You have four available for the whole game. That's not true. Sorry, you have four available at the beginning of the game. You could build some other fancy buildings, which will lock out one of your workers. But then that's so that limits you to how many of these stalls you can have out on the board and also how many you want to put out because you have to feed them all if they're left on the board and then you have to take it into consideration that they're like fire magnets <laughs> they, they will bring the fire and then uh and then at the end of the round they also will get you a bunch of income if they if you retire the card that gets you income and depending how much experience these employees have they'll get you a certain amount of income as well yeah the model of commerce here is deeply counterintuitive I personally don't know if it maps on to the way that Japanese commerce ever worked. I don't know what it was to be like a, a middle management or, or a small business owner in, or, or maybe even a couple steps above that, some sort of franchise owner in, 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 in uh, Japanese commerce. But at the end of every round, there's income and the income that the stalls generate, you just pocket right? So that Kabuki actor who generates points, you pocket those points. So let's, let's be a little bit clearer because they don't even call it income. They call it salary. Yeah. So you take the yeah. salary. Yeah. It's so weird. I was being generous by calling it yeah. income, but you're right. It's called salary. The salary you just pocket. It's kind of like pocketing the, the, the tips or the wages of the waitresses and food chain magnate. It doesn't make any sense. And then you have to feed them. So they're not even really like independent business owners the way that it's represented in the game. They're kind of like new children that you're getting that work for you. It's, it's, Thoroughly thematically bizarre. Mechanically, it works fine. You don't want to overextend yourself and get more stalls than you can support with your rice income. And that's pretty much what rice is for, just keeping your stalls out. And you want to diversify the, the income that your different stalls can give you through their quote-unquote salaries. But just every time you take a step back and try to think about it, it's one of those cases where, honestly, my understanding of the game is impeded by its thematic disconnect. It's a Euro, it, it's a Euro style game, even though it was designed in, in Japan. I don't, I don't mind it too much. But every time I sit down to play, I'm like, w uh, what? I have to remind myself about how weird it is. Speaking of weird, it has a very interesting sort of turn order mechanism as well. There is a fire track that you can go up taking various actions that will protect you from fire. It's a lie. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can't protect yourself from fire. But it's absurd. Fire takes what fire wants. Depending on where you are on that track is going to tell you where you're going to place your main figure on another track. A couple tracks. <laughs> That's okay. It's only the two. Don't yeah. worry. Yeah, yeah. 
And this the, this other track will determine the turn order, and it will also determine how far you're going to move around the rondelle. So fantastic sort of trade-off. Do I want to move far, but choose my employees and buildings last, or do I you know, do a short distance and be able to have the, all of the choice? Yeah, that part of the game of Iki is very, very well done, and it, as you say, it involves lots of trade-offs. I feel like procedurally it's a little bit more cumbersome than it wants to be. Because effectively on the course of your turn, you don't do a whole heck of a lot, which is fine. You might or might not take a person. You decide how far you want to go on the rondelle and you move on the rondelle and then you activate whatever you land on. That's fine. But it's chopped up into bits. And so the structure makes it a little more drawn out, a little more counterintuitive. Like people are, con- even people who are familiar with Iki sometimes forget, I, wh- what am I doing now? I'm moving on. No, no, I'm not moving on the rondelle. It's not rondelle movement time. That happens later. It's not that they all happen and, you know, you get a turn. It's just that, okay, now we all decide what we want to do with employees. Now we all decide where we're going on this track. Then we actually finally go on the rondelle. And I think it contributes to one of my two biggest criticisms of Iki, or at least one of the things that I like at least. And this is a very common criticism I have of games of the silk. I feel it's too long. Uh, our games of Iki are reliably two hours long at max player count. It's, it's, it's faster with fewer people. And I think it would be much, much better at 75 to 90 minutes because at the end of the day, all you're really doing is you're cycling through some workers and you're getting some fish. That's mostly what, what, what happens. And so I feel like it, there's a little bit of small ball that doesn't warrant full two hours. It's true, but it's, it's one of those, it's one of the circumstances where you can't just chop off turns, right? I agree. Just because of, you there's know, no simple fix. Yeah. There is no simple fix because you need to sort of build up all of these different aspects like your fire and your buildings and your resources so you can buy the bigger buildings. Okay. Let's talk about the fire. <laughs> yeah. So every <laughs> three times during the game, there's going to be a fire and, uh, it builds up, goes from five to eight to 10 strength. And you have to move up that track and you have to have equal to or higher than that number. And it's going to come on. There's four different districts on the map and you choose randomly which district it's going to start at. I use the word choose here and then you say randomly. It's randomly well, selected. You, you choose the tile and then you flip <laughs> it up randomly. Yes. Yes. And uh, just let me add quickly. And yep. then and then after you do it, you put that tile back in. So yes. technically the same district could be hit all three times. It's true. <clears throat> it is super arbitrary. It is. We're talking about a two-hour Euro-style management game where resources are relatively tight. Not cripplingly tight, but relatively. I, I actually like the level of, of our resource management, I think, is just about perfect. Money is valuable, but you can get it. You have to save up, and it's difficult to do so, but it's it's not cripplingly difficult to get any money at all. So we talked about Sabika last week, for example, and Sabika money was desperately tight. In Iki, I think it's just about, you know, it's a little bit looser than that, so it's just about right. But <laughs> there's this incredibly random fire yeah. that probably won't hurt you. Well, I am wondering if because of how the district score, I'm not going to go, oh, it, it's a thing of how many of the same color of stalls are in an area it's going to score that times. If there are two yeah. purple buildings in, a, in an area, each purple owner gets two. If there's three, everyone gets three per, etc. So, so maybe you're, when you're encouraged to clump up in light yeah. colors. So maybe when they were playtesting, people were just siphoning off in their own districts and scoring points that way. This fire system really makes you, A, spread out so you're not going to lose everything, and B, some people are going to excel on the fire track, and you can use them, like I said earlier, to stop the fire. Yeah, that's the other... <laughs> So here, okay. 
So okay. as in, if you're in a town that has a lot of fires, you're going to build your next business next to the fire station. That's only smart, right? Yeah, no, look, look it's fine. I mean, thematically, it's okay. You, you, it, it's, a, it's a little bit like the pirates in Galaxy Trucker, right? The pirates attack whoever's in front. If the person in front has terrible weaponry, then the pirates hit them and then go, go to you and hit, hit them. So you hope that if you don't have good guns, the person in front of you does. Galaxy Trucker is okay because the point of Galaxy Trucker is to watch things blow up, right? It's true. Iki is a two-hour Euro-style management game, and I don't feel like it deserves to have the same level of madcap possibility of destruction that Galaxy Trucker does. It is super arbitrary when and how things burn down in Iki. First of all, there's the you, you choose a random district, and then you maybe you're next door to somebody with great fire protection. Maybe it's the case that you your fire protection is always one short, and you always end up in the bad district, and so everything burns down. Or you completely forsake fire protection, but you always happen to be co- cozied up next to a neighbor. Sometimes it's the case that the person you cozied up to, maybe you were smart, thought for the future, the neighbor does something really weird, and force retires that person right out from under you, and suddenly you're left dangling in the wind, and when the fire comes, I feel like it's not the kind of thing you can plan for adequately. Even setting aside the one in four randomness, even setting that aside, you can't really plan for it adequately. And it seems to, it can cost you a lot of points. It, it, it might. I find it desperately, it's it's also not the kind of thing where you can often pivot to try to try to make up for lost ground. It's the kind of thing where midway through the game, it's happened to me a couple of times at least, and it happens to other people. Midway through the game, the second fire is about to come after you. Second fire is at level five. You look at the fire track, you're at two. And you're like, what's the point? <laughs> so you just, yeah. I, oh, yeah. You get, we, we, you I'm going I'm to roll the dice. I, I, can't, I can't take the pivot to try to... Uh, whatever. Just it, It'll come or it won't. <laughs> but... But then it also leads to, to interesting strategies, like we saw at the end of the game where you try to forcibly retire your guys to get them off the board so they're not going to succumb to the fire. I think that's interesting as well. Sure. It leads to some good decision-making, but honestly, the looming threat of fire and the way it's executed leaves me unsatisfied. I would be much happier if the game were reworked. Again, this is not a trivial fix, and I'm not I'm not rewriting the game here. I'd be happier if the fires hit districts in a more predictable way or if they just hit all districts every, every yeah, time or, or that that tile went out and then you knew that it was going to maybe something again. something so well, like, there is a there is an expansion coming out very soon so maybe it does something to the fire yes or uh some sort of compensation if you lose people to a fire uh maybe every time you uh, like even just every time a st- stall gets burned up you move up on the fire track honestly i'm not even sure that the fire adds anything to the game to be frank part of me suspects well like i said i think it makes you spread out I'm not sure that's true. I Part of me suspects that the game of Iki might be better. Might. If you just removed the fire entirely. Because the fire track already sets turn order. And turn order is super important. Because <laughs> only what... As you say, in turn order, you decide how far you're going to move on the rondelle. And there's only one spot. If you want to move one space on the rondelle and you desperately don't want to move any further, you have to get there before anyone else does. So you already care about being earlier in turn order anyway. So I'm not sure that the added pressure of a really random fire element adds much. True. But it is core to the game. A lot of the game is built around it. I just... Uh, I don't... I'm not that objectionable, objectionable to it. You're anyway, not... That, I have no idea what you just said. I am not that objectionable to it. You're not that objectionable to it. Yes. All right. Um, Moving on from the fire, I do want to go back to sort of positioning your... Fire! Positioning your stalls. And the retirement part, just that part of the game where 
you because you score based on where your 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 stalls are of the same color and you think you've got this interesting thing set up. <laughs> yep. And then the buildings get used a lot or Or well, they burn down. Or we have or they burn down. <laughs> okay, I, I thought we moved on from the fire. Or they burn down. Or or there's sort of a when you pass go around the rondelle, all of your em, all of your employees uh get more reputation. Shuffle towards their inevitable return. So you might yes. lose your stalls that way. And so this great scoring opportunity that you have, it's very much you have to make sure you can time it just right. I enjoy that. There's a lot of interesting jockeying with respect to the timing elements of the scoring possibilities, which makes me a little disappointed that that those scoring opportunities in Iki are dwarfed by the other scoring elements, right? The big points are going to come from your set collection of different color workers, from your fish, from and from other things. Like, honestly... Everything that you're doing in Iki, I enjoy, but the scoring feels disappointing. It's a, it, to a certain extent, it's a little bit of my misgivings of both Terra Mystica and Gaia Project. It's like, yeah, the, the mechanisms are great, and what's going on is all cool, and there's trade-offs, and there's resource management. But at the end of the day, what we're actually doing to get the points is just kind of, I mean, you get fish that score triangularly. You get tobacco and pipes and stuff that's this weird ancillary thing that's all by itself. You save up resources to build buildings, fine, but bog standard. And you're trying to get sets of different workers. That It's all well and good. But the most interesting scoring, the one that's the most interactive, the one that has the most timing considerations, the one that's the most dynamic, are these district points, which are frankly drops in a bucket. It's true. Actually, so now you've, now you've said it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh no. Well, I had to, oh, I, no. I, I burst your buzz. That's not so much. It's, I, I do have, <laughs> I have straightforward goals here. Like you can see, like you said, with the fish, you can see what you need with the buildings. But like you said, the most interesting part yeah. is the is the buildings, but and it's so small. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to claim that I'm very good at Iki. I don't think I've ever won one. But it, when I look at the, the the sheer volume of points that I get in a given game, and when I've had the most reliable source of points, it's very much been things like fish. It's like okay. I buy this fish for a couple money. It gives me in-game scoring. Well, I'd better plan to hit the spot next time the rondelle. Okay. <laughs> well, that part I love because it's graduated. There's four seasons. I love the the round structure. There are 12 turns to represent the 12 months. It's all broken into four seasons. And you have a, like a bag of components for each season. So it's graduated. It ramps up. And I think it ramps up in a sort of semi-interesting way. Your employees well, get... The employees ramp up really interestingly. The, the, the fish and the tobacco are kind well, of bothered the They place. get a high... Yeah, true. But more victory points for them. They they the, Just the, the fact that the sort of art style gets... Uh, like the, the very first fish are these little tiny sardines. And then, <laughs> and then you know, it, you know, it gets more luxury. You know I mean? Better, better That was not my pipes. perception. I don't know. But... And, and, before the Red Snapper is very tasty, but the overall art and presentation of the game, I think, is fantastic. That is true. And both editions. Lovely I, screen printed meeples, I, uh, very nice art on the, the the cards depicting the various professions at work. That's true. I really like the the first edition as well. It's very historical. It it, it harkens back to the actual uh, art style of that time. Oh, that's true. You're right. I, I enjoy that too. I haven't I've never seen it in person, but I've seen pictures. I'm not su- such a fan of the meeples in the first edition, but uh, the card art and the board art, I really enjoy. Honestly, the other thing about scoring that I find troubling to a certain extent is other than the professions, just getting out more cards of different colors, it feels an awful lot like the fire track. Namely, you look down at your board and you figure, okay, it's round 
you know, we're in this, the third or fourth season. It's not worth it trying to diversify. It's not worth it trying to make a push. If you missed out on the first couple of fish, just forget about the fish. If you missed out on the first couple rounds of tobacco, forget about the tobacco. And so it's not an interesting trade-off. It's just more like, well, I haven't committed already, so no point to doing it now. So, I mean, I I do appreciate that there's always the chance to diversify your professions a little bit more. Again, more dynamic, more interactive. But those elements, unfortunately, are often married to pretty standard set collection and uh, sunk cost fallacies and all, all manner of stuff like that. So, overall, uh, you know, the core mechanical elements, fire notwithstanding, of Iki, I think, is really solid. But it's in service of, of a lot of point stuff that I think is a little scattered and uneven. Read. And then there's the buildings that we haven't talked about, or talked about briefly, which lock up your employees. No, sorry. Lock up your... Yes. Yeah. I know. We've been switching back and forth from workers and employees. We've been using pretty generic terms, yeah. One of your meeples. One of your meeples of the four that you have at the beginning. And they score all sorts of different things. They let you score your fish, or they'll just give you flat out points. Flat points, yeah. But they require wood, Mark. (laughs) Wood wood and gold. Where's the wood? Well, wood and gold are hard to come by. That part I actually really appreciate. Well, at least you can get gold on the board. That is true. Wood, you're entirely at the mercy of what professions are available. That's true. So that really locked down how many buildings were built in our game because we had one wood stall. But that's fine. I, I like yeah. I like how the economy feels different at various stages sure, of, saying, of the game of Iki. I appreciated that part. Yeah, I'm not saying it was totally bad. I'm just saying it, it was interesting. I like, sure. like that, sort of like in, in uh, Game of Thrones where the first edition where you got no muster or no recruit. Those. Strange comparison. <laughs> well, no, just like, just games where certain elements are just taken right out. Just like I said in Woodcraft earlier, we had no reputation in some games. And, you know, when some elements yes, are right out and changes up the game in different ways. The, the, the difference is as follows. Because <laughs> I've already been uh, somewhat pejorative towards Iki about how random some of the elements are, particularly fire. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of wood available on the Rondell and Iki because we chose not to take the wood-bearing people. True. Not because the random deck didn't tell us to get any wood. There's a difference. This is true. There are some buildings that don't require wood, or there are some some buildings that, some stalls that will reduce how much wood, and if it only takes one, then you don't have to pay the wood at all. So there were some buildings built, but not many. Yeah, if anything, I'd be happier if Iki focused more on buildings and less on things like fish and tobacco, right? Because then it would interface more with the dynamic elements of the economy that I really like, and it would be a little bit less... It wouldn't be radically innovative or feel very different, but from other Euro games where you build lots of buildings, but I think it would be more satisfying and would play more to the core elements of Iki that I appreciate. And lastly for me, the one thing I do like is that there is a round 13, and it's the Lunar New Year, and you get to go to whatever spot you like. So if you always got blocked out of a certain spot or you had a or you had, you can work it into your strategy. It's like, okay, there is this one building that I want to build. I can do it on New Year's Day because I can just go right to the build spot. I just have to make sure I get that wood or that or that gold piece that requires to build a building. And I, I, th- I thought that was a good touch. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice safety valve. Yeah. I mean, the Rondell movement is satisfyingly extremely restrictive. Yes. But for the last turn, it's it's loosened up considerably. Yes. Just so. I mean, in summation for me, Iki is a game I'll happily play, but I don't think I'd ever suggest. A little too long, and the mechanical elements are just a little uneven, and the scoring is something that kind of sort of disappoints me. But in the realm of medium-heavy Euro games, I think it's definitely novel. And if you like rondelles, and I absolutely do, I think it's at least worth a play or two just to be able to experience how the rondelle works. I really like how the rondelle works. I just uh, think it's a bit of a shame how the rest of the game doesn't really play to its strengths. 
I'll play it anytime. It looks amazing on the table. Super fun to play. Looking forward to see what the expansion brings. Apparently there's another whole area that you can go off to. Secret meetings on the bridge, Mark. Ooh, trysts. I could sign up for some trysts. We'll see. Yeah, so we published later this year by Sorry We Are French. And uh, sure, I'll, I'll I'll play it again when the expansion comes out. See what happens. I generally expansions of this ilk. I'm a little bit nervous because morally it's like here's this other board you can go visit. It's like okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you for spending your time with us. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com/contact. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in. And we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. talk about the last of us this is uh, uh, a new show that is on crave yes in canada anyway in canada the u.s is HBO, which produces the show and it's based off of video game it is with the bleeping and the blooping and the buttons and it's a zombie show let's not pretend yeah. it's yeah. anything yeah. else and it's so <laughs> it's so weird that they would even try to make it something else because mushrooms mushroom zombies <sighs> <laughs> But, but Walker it's, is unim- just 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 listen just so you can understand. This is Walker's unimpressed face. But it's just, it's exactly <laughs> zombies. Like it's, why yeah. even try to do like at least I don't know they could have. Like, well, they're visually different. At least they oh, look different right. from okay, zombies. They look different. All right, and they have the interesting thing about they can sense if they have like a sort of plant network, so they can sense your footsteps and sure. So it'll. It'll summon them all to. to I, I agree area. with you that it's somewhat funny to watch a whole bunch of zombie shows avoid using the word zombie. <laughs> yes. That is kind of, that is kind of funny. So yes, uh, mushroom outbreak. Uh, <laughs> it is. It's funny because I just I did recently, very recently, just find out about this particular fungus that takes over insects. It's, yes, it's based off a real thing. Yeah, and uh, it's wild. Yeah, they grow inside and they keep just enough of the insect alive so it, it does its thing and yep. it inhabits with it and this is what's happening. There are a number of parasitic uh, infections that cause the host to behave in strange ways. And yep. so this can't transfer to humans due to temperature. Internal body temperature, we're told. I don't know if that's actually true. And then, it's plausible, but and I don't know. because of global warming, now it's hot enough. Well, they don't say that explicitly. Well, they just say... Well, no, I mean, look, they don't talk about climate change at all. They don't. Ever, right? Like, it could well be because of climate change. It's, it's never said. It is never said. That being said, a big outbreak in a flower factory. People know and, this. People people know the setup. And Is anyone confused? Yeah, like, yeah zombie to... apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, zombie apocalypse, yeah. So, did you play the video game? No. I found, I think, and I'm, I'm saying this in, in all honesty, I'm saying this not to be iconoclastic. I found the video game pretty mediocre. Uh, it, 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 I, I do not like the output of Naughty Dog Studios post like Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> not that I was a huge, I, I like Crash Bandicoot just fine. It's just they're, they're, they want to be making movies. And the games between their cinematic moments 
are very bog-standard third-person action-adventure stuff. And I also felt that the video game felt very self-important. It's like, we are doing high art now in the video game. And I'm like, okay, fine. And I've I played lots of video games that I really, really liked that were grappling with serious stuff very, very well. I've talked about uh, the first season of, well, most Telltale games, really, but the first season of, of The Walking Dead Telltale games was brilliant, I think. Uh, Spec Ops The Line is brilliant. Star Control 2 was brilliant. Like, you can tell great stories with these things. Even for all its ridiculousness, bits of Metal Gear Solid were really good. Did you get all the way through the video game? No. Oh. <laughs> how? In comparison to the five episodes that it, we're talking it about. It was a slog. Did you even get up to that point? Yes. Okay, and how? so how close are they... Are they, are they Following the video game, the TV show is vastly better because they're they're willing to play with 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 the narrative and be like, no, this is not going to be the two hour interlude where Joel shoots fifty thousand people in the head. They're like, we're going to skip the part where you're scrabbling for materials and then you make your own shiv out of the stuff you found in the derelict building. Instead, we're just going to have a story about Ron Swanson and his husband that are completely disconnected from the main story. And I, for one, am there for it. I think the TV show is miles better than the video game. Way, way better. Ugh. They're doing a very interesting part with the young girl and showing how her her mind is working. And she seems very sadistic in some parts. Yeah, they've changed her characterization rather considerably. Did they? Okay. Yeah. I think I said, man, that would be odd to play that that type of character. Well, you don't play as her in, in the first Vigi game. You play as her in the second Vigi game, oh, really? which I have not played. Oh, really? In the first thought, Vigi game, you only play as Joel. I thought for sure they bounce back and forth the way that the show, like I thought, you know, where they get, I won't do too many stories, but they, they're sort of like uh, cornered in a garage and she goes through, you know, a hole, which is video game style. And I thought maybe you'd do something <laughs> with her. Forgetting. I don't and know. Then, and then, well, you okay. If you that. do play, I, let me hedge my bets. I can't really remember. If you do play as her, it's not for very long. Gotcha. Because most, most of the gameplay is Joel shooting people. Like that. <laughs> Joel shooting people and scrounging for resources. That's mostly what you're doing. Anyway, she's super involved with guns. Guns, guns, guns. She wants a gun so bad. And then she runs into a, a zombie somewhere. And well, she, for her, in this case, I think one can fairly parse that as a desire for independence because she's basically been under captivity for much of her uh, True. adolescence. And safety, I guess, in a way. Uh, yeah, and then, and then there's a they, there's a mushroom trapped, which is completely defenseless. And there's a scene where she, you know, brutally kills it. Yeah, it, there could be a there could be an argument for putting it out of its misery. Yeah, she's but yeah. The, the, but we already know that the person has long gone and and that it, it is just existing. So it, okay, well, you and I, I think, and a lot of a lot of viewers regard, uh. Yeah. The whole issue that the zombie genre plays with a lot is people tend to be res- resistant to, especially if they they were people they knew, like putting down a zombie or putting a, like, yes, from an abstract perspective, and I'm a Kantian, so I completely agree. Once the consciousness is gone, that individual is not deserving of moral recognition, right? So kill it the way you would chop up a steak, like whatever. It's, it's all the same. Uh, but in context, you know, yeah, 
It's okay. a little more complicated than that, maybe. It is. It's just so weird that it was so defenseless and so out of the way. Like it, it w- there would be no way. Oh yeah, she's got a sadistic streak. There's no no two there ways would be about no that. No way that yeah, this yeah. thing could ever ha- hurt she, anyone. She is much more active and much more vocal and outgoing and and sadistic and characterized. Not 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 thoroughly sadistic, but a little bit, a little bit of a streak in her. I remember Ellie, but again, as I say, I don't really remember. I played it when it first came out. She was a bit of a cold fish. She was just like the standard. Here's the kid you need to escort from point A to point. B be kind of situation and it's just uh, I, oh man the, the game was tedious i found the game so tedious walker you have no idea i remember when it came out and GameSpot. this is the one thing i remember GameSpot gave it an eight out of ten and everyone said this was like a war crime that they gave it an eight instead of the nine or ten that it's so obviously that was the attitude of again i try not to be an iconoclast right but the prevailing wisdom at the time of the release of the last of us was this was the greatest thing ever and if you didn't love it there's something wrong with you I'm so glad that the show is so much better. I really like yeah, the I'm show. Glad, I think I'm is vastly that, better. I'm glad that the zombies and/or mushroom people are well out of it. There are, oh yeah, there are a few scenes, but it's mostly it's mostly about the people, of course, about people yeah. and and how they lose all morality or or sense of community or yep that kind of yeah thing. the desperation and well no but not all morality and, or community some of them some. find a renewed sense of connection right True. like that oh like, yeah like I'm episode three just... everyone and their dog talks about episode three and everyone and their dog is right because episode three was beautiful. And Ron Swanson is a beautiful human being. <laughs> it was it was good. And Pedro Pascal is dreamy, and I love him. It's true. <laughs> there was a joke I saw a, a meme somewhere uh, in in a you know give it about five years, and every prestige drama will be Pedro Pascal escorting a magical child somewhere. <laughs> it was a picture of him holding Grogu, and then a picture of him with Ali next. Yeah. Yeah. And so then, where was this? Because this guy. Wait. Well, hold on. Hold on. Just a second about Pedro Pascal. Because he's in his forties, right? Yes. Where has he been all this time? Like, was he just doing stuff that nobody paid any attention to? Like, what was he up to prior to the Mandalorian? True. Like, I, I don't. Oh no, he did. Uh, he was in Game of Thrones. Was he now? Yes. Oh, okay. I didn't watch that. Yeah, he's done a bunch of stuff. Okay. Because we did look into him because he was in. Oh, we were because t- we were talking about how it was John Wayne's. Uh, Grandson, right? Who, who does did, the the stunt work and the yeah. body work for the Mandalorian? Yeah, and Pedro Pascal does the voice and some of the scenes when the helmet's off. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. And then so we looked into he had done a bunch of stuff. I was watching the Mandalorian until quote unquote that Mark Hamill obst- uh, monstrosity showed up, and then I was like, no, I'm done. And we're out. <laughs> well, yeah, because the thing about uh, uh, the Mandalorian, just to connect it to The Last of Us, not that they're very similar shows. The Mandalorian was willing to tell relatively small, self-contained stories about people dealing with a variety of stuff, right? And it didn't feel burdened with all the incredible, like, everything else where, you know, can we find a way to work in the you'll be dead guy somewhere into a scene? Can we find a, can we have more TIE fighters here? People like TIE fighters. More, more lightsabers. And I liked the fact that none of that was there. It was just... This is dude wandering around doing it. It's like fine. It was a western, and then Mark yeah. Hamill shows up. Well, not, and I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> yeah, so there is no a, more. There is another show called Bad Batch for those okay. who want to watch Star Wars. You want no big characters. You want nothing. It's it's a, a unit of stormtroopers that had uh, deficiencies that were put into their own unit, and they go do their own thing, and no main characters in it. Just Star Wars universe. The way I wish more Star Wars stuff was made. Sure, you know, uh, Peter Pascal is great. Last of Us is great. It's it's good. And, and the strange thing is, the the bizarre thing is, contrary to most other prestige television, even shows that I really like, and contrary to the original video game, the pacing is real good. It's slow, but not overly slow. 
and it knows that it's okay. It's like, okay, we weren't, we're gonna, we're gonna spend an hour not talking about Joel and Ellie. We're gonna do yeah. this other thing. And it really works as opposed to a lot of other prestige television shows where it's like, okay, we're gonna do a side story now. It's like, yeah, that's because you're dragging this out longer than it needs to be. And it's so, it's weird because they do some things that are right, like, sorry, not as in filmmaking or storytelling, yeah, yeah. as in, as in zo- zombie apocalypse things. Uh huh. Like, uh, Murdering everyone immediately, which is the way it needs to be done. <laughs> Dropping bombs immediately, which Wa- is the way it needs to be done. Walker has views. But then but then they do some other things that are weird. It's like new people come in to the, a community and they just, you know, oh, we're here. It's like, have you been bitten? No. Okay, well then come on in. It would be like one of these well, things there were where- d- like, What? You're talking about the, the, there were dogs in the – oh, no, that's that's later. There would be, there would be like this, you know, no, you stay over here. In isolation for a while and yeah. you, you – Show us everything that is so we see no bites, and then you're isolated for a while, and then you you know what I mean it's like you've seen what's happening. So my all just over the my world. my talking about how the pacing was good. You want to murder the pacing now. You yes. want to have it so that every time they go to a new place, there's a there's 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 a bottle episode every time. Well, or they're just no, sitting around waiting to not exist. No, symptoms. they just have to show that. Yeah, that's hint around the fact that it's happening. Yeah. So I, I, <laughs> I this is one of those rare times where you know the geek consensus. Uh, is I think accurate. This is a this is a good show worth watching. People have been hitting. I, I mean, praising the show for all the right reasons. Um, and despite the fact that I I didn't really have any enthusiasm for the core property, but I think it's really well done, and uh, they deserve the success they're getting. Yep, looking forward to more. We'll come back to you when we watch the next five episodes. Will we? Why not? Okay. Well, we didn't really talk about specific things anyway, did we? Not really. No. Bye bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.